I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster. Sailing across the sky, and the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we uh, thank you for life. We thank you for another opportunity to talk and uh, share ideas. We pray that your spirit will be with our volunteers and staff and everybody involved and the people who will watch the program uh, tonight and then later on that the truth will be known. We pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, how about a look at a new spot? I recommend a church that you're going to feel comfortable with. I also recommend a church where the pastor teaches the Bible, doesn't tell stories about himself all day long, doesn't have rock concerts, doesn't demand tithing and offerings. The church I demand the most is going to be a church that has the least amount of boundaries and burdens that it places upon people. So if you go to a church and it says, you got to come here on Wednesday, you need to sign a membership thing, you need to pay tithes, you need to do this, I wouldn't recommend that church. But if you want to be under those burdens, feel free. My recommendation is go to a church where the pastor is going to help liberate you, not bind you up. Again, we thank Vivian Mayer in uh, She's Passed On for those uh, photographs, and then Cassidy McCraney for putting it together, and Steve Utley for the music. It's a collaborative effort, really good. And with that, how about we go to the Board of Direction. I apologize to our international viewers because tonight's uh, Board of Direction, actually just our talk, is going to be best understood for those who live in the U.S., uh, especially those who have been to high-end, top-notch U.S. grocery stores for our illustration tonight. Imagine that you go into a really nice U.S. grocery store or a really nice grocery store anywhere, but typically in the U.S. they do some real fancy things and not like a New York City bodega or some kind of a cheaper chain of markets, but a really high-end, you know, place that really fancies it up. They call them, there's a place called Wegmans or Publix or Trader Joe's does a pretty good job. Some of the local uh, larger chains, they will really do a good job if they have one of those super stores. And they display the best products in the best possible light. 
Now, so go with me and look to the board for a second. And you can see on the board, we've, we've given you just a really quality uh, illustration here of one of those vegetable stands in the uh, high-end grocery department. And if you go to the vegetable, the lighting is perfect. The vegetables are symmetrical and they're really, really big and large and beautiful and they're laid out and they always have that perfect amount of spray that's on them and they look so, they're waxed typically and look so good. So just imagine that if you would, uh, perfect representations of vegetables, okay? That's uh, the thing I want you to get into your head. Now liken this glorious display of vegetables to the way many evangelicals today uh, portray the Bible. Just make that comparison. Everything is supposed to be illuminated, everything is waxed, everything is top shelf, and there's no deformities uh, in the vegetables, okay? Very, very few deformities at least. In other words, the Bible is nearly perfect, if not perfect. Some people actually believe it is perfect, the ones we have in our hands. So you got that comparison in your head, Near-perfect vegetable presentation, near-perfect Bible. Okay, uh, uh, go ahead and erase, eraser. So, it's an image that was voiced by our brother and our friend, uh, Matt Slick, here on this very stage not long ago, when he emphatically repeated, and once was really quite emphatic, there are no contradictions in the Bible. This vegetable stand contains perfect vegetables. That's essentially what was said. So like in that, in your mind, now I want to address something that I mentioned that last week that I was going to talk about, and that was the debate I watched. It's the first debate I've ever watched on YouTube, uh, second debate I've ever watched in my life. First one was live here in Salt Lake City. The opponents, two men who carry a lot of clout in the Christian world of apologetics, Brother Bart Ehrman, you may have heard of him, and Brother James White. Now, Bart Ehrman is among the heavyweights in Christian academia. Uh, 22 years old, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and studied under one of the most esteemed Greek scholars that our modern generation has known, uh, Dr. Bruce Metzger. And Ehrman gained interest in biblical languages at Moody Bible College. He then went to Wheaton, where he finished his bachelor's degree before going on to study under Metzger at Princeton, getting his uh, Masters of Divinity there, and then going on and getting his PhD under Metzger. And from there, he spent some 30 years studying actual Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Today, he's authored over 20 books, several of them New York Times bestsellers, and a few are highly controversial in the world of Christianity. Presently, he sits at a, as a distinguished uh, Professor, scholar of religious studies at University of North Carolina. Again, no lightweight when it comes to the New Testament, really. Uh, opposing him was, uh, Dr. Ehrman, was James White, a noted Christian apologist. He's a relentless debater and a staunch five-point Calvinist. Brother White got his bachelor's degree from Grand Canyon College and a master's from Fuller Theological Seminary. He is currently the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, and he's authored several books. So I admit that while I admire these two men, um, and I admittedly, uh, the peon that I am when it comes to, by comparison to them, I'm gonna take the liberty to say that I have some issue with some of their views. How? I honestly find both of their approaches to the subject that they debated short-sighted. 
neither of them have, with all their intellect and all their knowledge and education, neither of them have come to a place where they have come to a reasonable understanding. I respect Bart Ehrman's knowledge in the New Testament and his honesty at revealing some of the detrimental facts about it, uh, but I disagree with him where his vast knowledge has taken him in his personal and public views. And where I personally do admire James White's uh, devotion to God in Christ, I do believe that he truly believes uh, what he believes. Uh, I don't fully appreciate his scholarship or the way he presents the elements of the faith to the world. I know for a fact he feels the same way about me. And that being said, I embrace them both as my brothers. Uh, yes, even Ehrman and uh, would never not associate with them because of their respective views. So there they were, two very capable men, uh, full of education, skill, and information. And the topic they debated that I watched, can the New Testament be trusted? That was the question. Now, I'm not going to cover their presentational materials. The debate was three hours long. Both sides had merit, in my estimations. Both sides have the right to teach what they teach. They just, they just do. And I think that we can learn from right opinions and wrong opinions. They don't have to always be right. We can learn from the wrong ones. But what was really intriguing to me was how these two brilliant, educated, experienced men have decided to view and see and understand the application of the New Testament in this world. Uh, from what I could tell, Brother Ehrman discounts the word as having true religious value. I say true religious value because he does believe it has value in religion. He just doesn't believe the value is true. So he does not see the New Testament as having true religious value. On the other hand, Brother White uses the New Testament at the other extreme. He promotes it almost as having no error or issue at all. And then it is to him, from what I can tell, almost like the written law, which he will use as a club to hit people over the head with if they don't conform to his views. So again, not holding a candle to either of these guys in, in terms of intelligence or formal education, I believe after watching them, they failed to see the purpose and place of the New Testament in the world today. In my estimation, these failings continue to fuel these flames that have been burning since the Bible's been around and continue to burn and just cause two good men in their respective fields to battle with each other over things that are never going to be solved. We might think that among all this information, they would choose to kind of push in and say, okay, let's agree to disagree and let's seek for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, something like that. Now, we might argue that this observation that I've made, uh, that Ehrman and White don't care, and they, I'm sure they don't care what I think, but they might say, oh, what you're, what you're, you're just pushing in toward the middle for peace is just ridiculous. I'm sure Ehrman thinks he's doing the world good by discounting the New Testament. And I'm sure White thinks he's actually defending the truth for God and that God is proud of him for the stances that he's taken. But again, my astonishment is that neither of these intelligent men see how limited, really limited, their view and use of the New Testament really is. Bart Ehrman, possessing all these facts, but by and through his scholarship, he could have led the body 
knowing all the stuff he knows, he could have led the body into a new way of seeing and understanding the New Testament contents today. Unfortunately, Brother Ehrman decided to pretty much malign the New Testament altogether uh, and therefore our wonderful faith to the point that he now calls himself publicly, and I'm just an agnostic. I'm a humanist. I'm an agnostic. That's what he says. That's a devastating blow to the faith, in my estimation, that we have a man who has that pedigree and that educational and academic background who stands and says, I'm an agnostic now. But listen, there are, there's a good reason for the views that Ehrman has, okay? And in my estimation, the majority of the fault for his present day views, the majority of the fault for Ehrman standing against the Bible and against the faith now, lie at the feet of men like James White, not James White himself, but men like James White, in how they presented the Bible to Bart Ehrman when he was a young boy and a young Christian. You see, Brother Ehrman was once a professed fundamentalist. He was a professed Orthodox Christian. He believed all the rhetoric. And it was this ardent faith that led him to want to go into this course of study. But before doing so, he trusted that the Word of God was infallible, incorrupted, had no contradictions, and was without any serious error. The message White and those around him continued to preach. So to Ehrman, the New Testament was the Word of God with a capital T. And if God, he says, he says this, if God inspired the original writers to write without error the original manuscripts, why wouldn't God cause the copyists to be just as inspired? That's his comment. Remember his pedigree. So to tie his views to the Bible, to my illustration, Bart saw the New Testament the way we might see vegetables in a top shelf grocery store. Large, perfect, orderly, without any issues, no flaws, basking in light, waxed, watered, really beautiful presentation. That's how he went into his educational pursuits, seeing the New Testament. So young Bart embarked on probably what he thought was going to be a real rewarding career in honoring God. But instead, he, he experienced what more and more people are going to experience with the advent of the Internet. More and more people are going to see they're going to have a rude awakening. All right. What I mean by this is compared to what Bart was taught the New Testament to be and what he discovered it to be firsthand, he had a very rude awakening. So rude that he's now an admitted humanist agnostic. What helped push Ehrman to this rude awakening? It was the presuppositional rhetoric that he got when he was a kid that this thing, that the Bible is that, that display of vegetables. That's how you need to see it. That's what it is. And he went into it believing it. People who have presented the New Testament uh, are just like those grocers. They just get the very best and they say this is what it is. Bart believed this it was the only viable way to, that the Bible could be seen. And he was, he was plied with a presuppositional, inauthentic view of the New Testament. 
and one contrary to all reality, he soon discovered. And discovering it, he what he did, if we're going to make the comparison to the vegetables, is he stopped going to the top shelf grocery stores and he went to the wholesale markets and he went to the places that sell defective vegetables and he went to other places in the world where carrots look differently than they do in those stores and he saw firsthand that all vegetables do not look like what was presented to him and that's the comparison to the manuscript studies that he's done and so the sanitized largely perfect shape, GMO-laden Bible presentations today are a misrepresentation. And they're not based in reality. The reality Ehrman discovered was vegetables today without genetic manipulations from men, without lights, without wax, without sprinkled water, are actually very different, depending on where they came out of the earth. That beets in China look very different from beets in the U.S. And that natural carrots right out of the ground can be smallish or huge, can be deformed looking. Uh, they can be multi-formational. They can be twisted. These similarities he also found in the manuscripts of the New Testament. He did not see perfect presentations that he had been taught. He saw twisted, multi-formational, larger than life and smaller than life, and incongruent representations of the text. And instead of that perfect representation, he found contradiction. And so um, it's what causes him to say, if God gave the New Testament by perfect inspiration in the first place, why wouldn't, why couldn't, why wouldn't God keep the New Testament in the same state over the centuries? And I humbly suggest there's an answer to that, and it's the New Testament wasn't written to us. It's very, very easy. It wasn't written to us. It was written to them. And when they received it, it was in a perfect form. It was in a very perfect form. And so they got it and they read it and they were able to get exactly what they needed to know for their day and age. We today have received the variant forms. We've received the diversity of presentations. We've received the twisted multi-formational vegetables. But listen very closely. Stay with me. The same nutrients and the same taste is present in the vegetables we have today. Twisted, odd-shaped, ugly, dirty, smaller, larger, not that perfect presentation, it doesn't matter because they carry the same taste factors and the same nutrients. This is missed by Ehrman. In his argument, what he says is, we don't, the, the manuscripts are bringing us a convoluted thing, but when he steps back, he admits the convolutions are really not that big of a deal. Not that big of a deal at all. Do you get it? Just because a character is smaller or twisted today or has several roots does not mean it's lesser than the beautifully shaped carrot in the high-end grocery stores. Uh, its nutrients, its taste is the same. The gist of the message is it's all we need. In that day, they needed it word perfect. In our day, we take the gist of what is being said. Because the gist of what is being said is enough. 
because we aren't looking for it to be a literal manual to guide every step of the way. We're looking for the gist of the message to understand by the Spirit what God wants us to know. If all we need are the nutrients and all we need are the taste of the, of the New Testament, that's all we need. And, but the problem was Dr. Ehrman, having been taught the principles of Sola Scriptura and the infallibility of the word and the inerrancy of it and all that stuff, he actually bought into the, the comments that there's no contradiction in the Bible and he found out uh, otherwise. In fact, it was his expectations that were proven untrue, not the word. It was his expectations of the word, which were set so loftily they could never measure up, especially to the scrutiny of his advanced scholarship. So, I mean, even when I endeavored to teach the Bible verse by verse over a decade ago, and I started to learn how to do it, and I'm using Greek in the minor leagues, uh, it didn't take more than a, a, a solid week and a half for me to see that there is no way this thing is word perfect. And it's far afield from it when you just look at the different interpretations of it. So, and I wasn't raised in American evangelicalism. I can't imagine what it would be like to be raised in American evangelicalism, be told this about the word of God, and then find out it doesn't hold water when it's really uh, held uh, under scrutiny. Fortunately, my faith was established spiritually by a roadside experience uh, before the Bible ever played a role in my walk. And as a result, I actually cherish the messages that the Bible gives me. I actually cherish its content. And when there are things that don't make sense in it or that are proven to be off, it's no big deal to me. It's just like, all right, so what? I mean, we're getting the general message of this, right? And that's, that's the healthier way that we need to pursue this which Ehrman hasn't done and which White hasn't done. I don't blame uh, Brother Ehrman for his views. I, I, uh, it's the same views the LDS uh, have when they see that they've been burned. I'm sorry about Brother Ehrman. I'm not sorry for him. I'm sorry about him. I think he's going to be okay. He's not preaching lies any more than James White is preaching lies. They're telling the truth as they see it, and he has courage to do it. But what is truly most unfortunate about him is he is like a man who as a child was taken and he was shown vegetables and he was taught, this is what vegetables look like. This is what you need to eat to really eat vegetables. And then as a man, he discovered for himself that in reality, they can look very, very, very different. And unfortunately, he now refuses to eat them. He just, just says no more. And uh, had our boy genius been taught that the Bible was never intended to be what men have made it to be, uh, and that the God who inspired the original writers uh, to write did not inspire and direct the hands of thousands of copyists who have translated it, we might have a different Bart Ehrman on our hands today. We might have a guy with all that education who can reasonably reach out to the world and explain to them that the book is for a map to us for spiritual enhancement for the individual, not as a manual to govern the brick and mortar churches. And so um, I feel sorry for, uh, I feel sorry about Brother White too. Not for Brother White, I think he's going to be okay. Uh, but in reality, the major differences between White and Ehrman are how each man interprets and responds to the facts that Ehrman produces. White couldn't dispute the facts that Ehrman presented. 
but White uh, chose to see them as possibilities where Ehrman chose to see them as impossibilities. And then we have the two polarized sides. Bible's not true, throw it out. And so people who read Bart Ehrman's books use them as justification to quit the faith and throw the Bible away. And people who follow White and read his stuff say it's perfect. And he's creating people when they discover differently will walk away too. And it's both, both ways are failing us and will more and more fail us. They will fail our children. That we can learn from the LDS. Their own history has bitten them big time. And all the internet has really done, well, it's happening to the, to the Christian faith too. And all the rhetoric we have used to keep people in the faith about different aspects that have been proven, well, that's probably not really right, are gonna uh, turn around and, and bite us. So I wish we would just take that step and step away from this perfectness and admit that the Bible was written to a people at a time and it was perfect. And we have no way of really even proving how perfect it was. We have none of those manuscripts, but that we have a beautiful book today that inspires and uplifts and teaches us so much, but it can't be used as a club and it can't be used dogmatically on people. And we can't uh, tell people that there's absolutely no contradictions in the book and we can't tell them it's perfect. That's not true. Let's just give them some reasonable way to see it and so we can move on through this delicious, nutritious faith. Okay, uh, we've talked about God. We've talked about Jesus. We've talked about Satan, the Holy Spirit. We've talked about creation, the fall. We've talked about atonement all this year. Mm. A few uh, weeks ago, we started talking about the good news. So this has kind of led us to that point. And we talked about how is the good news received? Does God force it upon us in the monergist fashion? Or is it a two-way street where he provides it and we decide to choose it? And at this point, we are at a point in our conversation where uh, now we are choosing the gospel. What does the Christian walk look like? That's where we're at. And we're going to finish the year up with this. And I'm outlining, I think, what is going to be a superb, unique year uh, for 2017, but we're going to finish the next two or three, three shows talking about the Christian walk. And I'm going to wrap it up using a concept. You probably have seen that I'm, uh, I, I use these things. Whoa, can't see it. Uh, people here uh, call this the iRobot. Uh, that's not what it is, but it's a shape. And, um, uh, I'm going to go to the board and explain what this shape represents because this shape right here, it will help us, it'll be a tool for us to understand both the Christian conversion and the Christian walk. Now, how on earth could this thing do that? Uh, I, well, I, you may know that I relate to forms and I relate to conceptual shapes. And uh, the very first shape hit me, this one, uh, when I was sitting in a Mexican restaurant years and years ago in Huntington Beach, California, and I think it was either a Christmas Eve or a New Year's Eve. My poor family, they probably wonder where I was. I was and, and I'm sitting there, and uh, perhaps it was due to my training as a Latter-day Saint where they had this thing that I learned as a missionary that you drew out the plan of salvation. Some of you will remember that. And we drew this plan of salvation out. And then we could kind of show in a two-dimensional fashion what the three-dimensional uh, concept was about the plan of salvation. So I kind of learned to see things in forms that way, and, and I've always thought, what, 
what dimensions or shapes or forms can help people understand what the Christian faith is about. So uh, I start thinking about man in the fall and God's image and man made in God's image. And I asked the, the waiter for more white napkins. By the way, napkins are great to uh, think concepts on. So I, I scribble upon these napkins and I thought about how God created man in his own image. And I wondered if that meant anthropomorphically, like uh, in his image, are we, does God look like a man? And because I was LDS and then, uh, but I was a new Christian. And then I started thinking about, are we created with communicable attributes? And uh, so I took out a napkin, I took out my Bible and I started sketching and reading. I crossed out, I tossed, I gathered, I threw them away. Yuck, no good. More and more napkins. I do this all the time. And then I read in Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Ah, there's the first thing, dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So what I was able to do is I was able to say, okay, we have dust or clay, and then we have the breath of God, and then we have living soul. And that's how Adam is described as being created. Uh, he has dust. He has the breath of life and he became a living soul. Those are the three, three parts of man. So I put them, uh, and I'm going to go to the board, Derek. I put them in a hierarchy. And if we have calls tonight, first time callers, tell me. I'm just going to kind of talk about this as we go. So I said, okay, we have dust or clay. And we have the spirit breathed in to the dust or clay and we have man becoming a living soul. And so this would be the body. And so we have body, soul, and spirit. And then I looked in Hebrews and the scripture talks about man being body, soul, and spirit. There's three parts and that's three in one. So I started thinking about man being three in one and I came up just with this simple illustration and it looks like this. This is man. And uh, I happened to be going to uh, a Christian uh, college at the time. And so I learned that the body in the Greek is called sarx, and the soul is called the suke, and the spirit is called the pneuma. And I understood what the Greeks meant when they talked about those things. And so th what I did was I labeled this as man. And uh, it gave me a good concept about how we're made in, made in God's image and what it meant. I quickly saw that man was three in one. And so I thought of the Trinity and I thought of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I tried to liken the Son to the body and the soul to the, 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 the Holy Spirit and the Spirit to God and all those different things. You know, you mess around with these concepts. And I was wondering how we were really created in His image. And I started thinking about do animals, are they created with a body? Yes, they are. Check. Do they have uh, a soul? And when I learned in class that the soul, uh, according to the uh, Greeks, is the mind and the will and the emotions of a being. And so does an animal have a soul? Yes, an animal has a soul. They have a mind, a will, and emotion. But an animal doesn't worship God. An animal that we know of, an animal doesn't have uh, an, ab an ability to reason out certain things. An, an, an animal doesn't often have free choice the way we think of it. Uh, we think sometimes they do and that they choose wrong, 
but that's usually just the product of their mind, will, and emotion. So I started seeing man in a different way, and, and so therefore created in God's image, because we have his spirit. <laughs> so this breakdown, it's going to get to the point where we understand the Christian walk from this. Trust me. So, so far, so good, I thought. And apparently God thought so too. He said, you know, I've given Adam a body. I've given him a soul, a mind, will, and emotion. I've given him a spirit. And uh, he was made alive by that spirit to choose. Adam was given the choice. Don't eat of this tree. God didn't force him to eat of it. God didn't stop him from eating of it. He gave him a choice. And so the first man had choice through these three parts of his person. Okay? So then I read that God gave Adam two commandments in Genesis 2. And it says, but of the tree of knowledge, he said, multiply and replenish the earth. That's the first commandment. And the second one is, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Okay, so I thought when I'm looking at my three compartments of man, I thought, okay, and I looked up, I remember looking up, when did Adam die? And because God told him, the day you eat, you will surely die. But the day he ate, he didn't die. He didn't die till he was 930 years old. So I'm thinking, well, did he die? And then I, then I remembered, oh, wait, he died spiritually. So we can draw a heavy black line here. And we can say this part, and there's a debate on this, all of us are dead. We're spiritually dead. And for this reason, Jesus said a man must be born again, which in the Greek means born from above, in order to even see the kingdom of God. So what that did was that left us in this place. You see? It left us in this place. And, and where we are dead to the spirit, so man, instead of being in God's image in this world, the world has fallen now because Adam sinned, man is now a bipartite soul. We operate in this life when we're born, by our mind, will, and emotion, and by our bodies. We say, you know, I think I want to do that. And then we say, I feel like I want to do that. And then we say, I will do that. And then we say, with our body, do it. And we don't have, an, we don't have a influence from the spirit because we are spiritually dead. Now, to the degree of that, we're not going to get into that tonight. But right now, this is the, and I called this the realm of happiness. That's this life down here. This is the realm of happiness. And, and what I meant by that is, I think everything we do in this realm of uh, body and soul is for our happiness. And then I started examining around us life and I started looking at our actions and the things we do in terms of positive and negative choices. I started saying in the realm of happiness, all individuals have a body and a soul. They're spiritually dead. This is earth life. We're operating by bipartite soul, uh, uh, bipartite um, 
existence. And so this is life. Anybody who is on this earth that does not know God by the Spirit, who has not been born of the Spirit, is operating in this life somehow. Now, there are people, these negatives and positives refer to consequences of our choices to give ourselves happiness. All right. And so I started thinking, all right, I'm breaking down what it means to live in this world. I'm breaking down what it looks like to operate in the realm of happiness. And so I started to kind of lay out a list. People in their body who do negative things because it makes them happy, they will do sex, illicit sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever that means. They will... um, They might be violent. Uh, They might uh, be gluttons. Something I'm very familiar with. Uh, They might have poor nutrition because they love to eat junk, whatever it is. And uh, they might do some self-harm. And we see a lot of this today in this world. Okay, in the body, they have chosen to do things that have negative consequences because it makes them happy. It just makes them happy, and that's why they do it. In fact, I suggest, and you may disagree with me strongly, I suggest that people will do whatever they're gonna do as long as it's making them happy in the way they wanna be happy. When they stop being happy from the thing that they're doing, they will change to doing something else. So it really helps you in dealing with people in this fallen world. And now we can say, oh, but they don't want to be addicted. When someone says, I don't want to be addicted anymore, you say, I'll help you out. But when their actions show that they still want to be addicted, it's because it makes them happiest. If someone says, well, I can't get off my heroin, it's because getting off makes you unhappy. And if getting off made you happier, you would get off. And so the realm of happiness is all about the self. So if we jump up, to let's just go over to positive things in the body. Well, we know what those are. People work out and they do sports and they eat well and they, uh, what else? They take vitamins and uh, they see a doctor every six months and uh, they have healthy uh, sexual relationships. And all the stuff that comes with positive consequences, no deviances that create neg- negative consequences. This is life in the realm of happiness. This is what all of us are doing. Now, what gets interesting here is if you look at to the soul, the mind, will, and emotion, and the negative things of consequences, it gets a little dicey. We have, uh, we have gang warfare, and we have uh, uh, antisocial behaviors, we have uh, vandalism, and we have um, destructiveness and anarchy, and all those types of things that are of the mind, will, and emotion of the person that have negative consequences to their life and to the lives of those around them. But then we jump over here in the realm of happiness, the positive things of people's mind, will, and emotion. And what do we have there in the realm of happiness, the fallen world, the spiritually dead world? Well, we have people who are really good and great at education, formal education. And we have people who are into organized religion. 
And we have people who are into civic duties. This is a mind, will, and emotion thing. And these are all really positive things in terms of social and individual consequences. They, they get involved in them. Over here, we see tremendous reflections of the LDS, for instance, and some Catholic organizations and other religious institutions, or the Shriners, or the, the Fez's guys, whatever it is. So we can see that you know, we have people who have good hobbies and people who are into coaching and uh, things like that, helping out, volunteerism, okay? But here's the key. And this is all leading up to next week. What can we say about everything that is done here, whether it's in this category, that, that, or that? We can say it's all spiritually dead. We can say it's all part of the realm of happiness. And we can say that it's currency into the realm of joy is zero. It has no currency beyond this life because it's not of the spirit. It's of the flesh. So we all choose what we want to do. The LDS at their very best are, I mean, they're nailing it over here. They don't do anything over here at all. They're nailing it in this department, but they're still spiritually dead. And so it's a really important thing to understand when you're teaching somebody about why Christianity and why Christ. Because when you lay this out for them, you tell them, look, it doesn't matter because these are things we all choose to do in our lives. You have time, you have whatever it is. Your choice is that. If you want to destroy yourself over here, have at it. It's your, your free will. If you want to be involved in these things, you'll probably have a, a safer, better life and you'll have more money, whatever. But it means nothing relative to the spirit. One last concept and we'll open up the phone lines. So what happens is we have a doorway into the spirit. And his name is Jesus. And he comes and he says, hey, listen, I'm, I've come and I've lived this life. I've been through all these temptations and I understand what the realm of happiness is about, but I chose the realm of the spirit. And so I invite you to, from this cesspool, to look to me. And when you do, this door will swing wide and you will be able to be born from above. When that happens, we're gonna cover that next week. That is how we start to understand the Christian walk relative to what happens down here. Most carnal people see life this way. They don't understand what this life down here looks like once this is involved. Now, here's the final interesting point about all this. And it is that when that door is open, where does the light shine brightest? The light shines brightest straight down. This is a glorious place of light. This is a place of darkness. Jesus came into the darkness and the dark comprehended it not. He opens the door, he shines down into it, and we can see the people who are involved in the things with the most negative consequences are quickest to recognize him. 
This is why we talk about the, the weak things of the world and the failures of the world, recognizing him. It's why when he walked the earth, there were the, who, who his audience was. And we note that the people who were over in these categories, especially over here in the far north uh, east quadrant, they are the furthest from the light. And so this is why it is so difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because as the, light, as the door opens here and it shines down brightly into this part, where people are really into some heinous things that are destructive, it starts to lose its brightness as it gets out over into these realms. And when you open a door here straight across at the height of this corner, people are like, what do I need him for? I have everything I want. I have my life's in order. Why I volunteer every week, while I coach, while my hobbies are about putting chips in bottles, while I do civic duties. I belong to my church, I'm a deacon. I have a PhD in organic chemistry. Why do I need Jesus? And Jesus tells us this is why these types don't know him. So next week we'll continue on and we'll talk about what it means to move up from this area down here through Jesus and come up into this realm. This is what it's all about in the Christian walk. And we'll start to talk about what that gospel should and could and might mean to you once you embrace what it's all about. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 590-8413. We have an off-air question, but first, let's check out this. This is from Bo Chambers. Hey, Sean, I'm the NAS pastor from California. I got another question for you. I've been sensing for a while a shift in American evangelicalism and the American way we have been doing Christianity. I wonder if you have sensed what I feel may be the second great reformation. I do, and I think it's really out of necessity. And uh, I really hope that more and more people are, are going to... Uh, Step away from the dogma, step away from the brick and mortar, move more toward uh, an understanding faith that has a little more leeway, a lot more understanding of each other, uh, just a lot more praising of God through Jesus Christ and letting everything else fall by the wayside. So I do see that uh, happening, my brother. Uh, Wyatt in Durango, Colorado is on the line. Wyatt, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, uh, hey, Sean, how you doing, man? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. So, um, um, I was in a conversation with uh, Mormons last week, and uh, I brought up the question of 2 Nephi 25, 23. Are you familiar with that passage? Oh, not anymore. Tell me it. Um, so, basically, uh, the, so, basically, it says, for by grace we are saved after all we can do, right? Okay. Um, so there's a lot. Of, so basically, I interpret that passage as uh, after we have exhausted all of our efforts, 
to uh, get saved, then the grace of God is uh, permitted to us, right? Yeah. Yep. So this interesting conversation that I had with you know, with the Mormons that actually contradicted themselves and contradicted the uh, Book of Mormon when it said that, when they say it's grace first, then works. Yeah, there's a, there's a new twist on the interpretation of that now that's being pushed down by people in the church, and it's, it's read this way. Hey, it's by grace that we're saved. After all that you try to do! That's how they're reading it now. After all you can try to do? After all that you do, it's still by grace. For by, it's, oh, yeah, that's how they're reading it now. It says it right there. It's by grace that we're saved. After everything you try, it's by grace that you're saved. That's how they're explaining it now. Wow. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, I mean if, it, if it works with the Bible and that is in harmony with it. I'll, if, see, that's the thing, uh, uh, Wyatt. I think that they're shooting themselves in the foot and they don't know it. And I think it's going to lead to the members turning in the spirit and getting it while the leaders are blind. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I answered them uh, basically with uh, Matthew 20, uh, or Matthew, I think, uh, man, 520, where it says, uh, unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then, uh, then you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Good one. So what did they say? We should, so basically our righteousness shall exceed that those people that are basically living, breathing, eating, sleeping, the law of Moses, before we can, before we can enter the kingdom of heaven, if it's work-related. Yeah. And it compounds the problem even more, uh, and Matthew, I think Matthew 20-something, I, I forget, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all thy heart, and, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Has anybody done that? Right. I mean, even the LDS can't say they've done that. Right. So how did you... you can't take your mind off Christ. So how did right. you explain to them, Wyatt, that uh, what Jesus meant when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. How did you explain it to them, what it meant? I yeah, I explained to them it meant that our righteousness shall exceed those people that basically live, breathe, eat, sleep the law of Moses before they can enter into the kingdom of before they can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I asked them, has the righteousness ever exceeded that? Right. But my question to you is, how do you explain what Jesus meant when he said that? How do I explain what Jesus meant uh, when he said when that? He said unless that, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. How do you explain that passage, just for our audience's sake? I'm just curious of how you explain it. Mean, I, I, explain, you know, I explain that passage basically, if it's works related, this is the standard that you should, uh, that you should follow if you're going to go by works related. Oh, okay. Now, we all know that we can't, we can't as, in, uh, as Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah. Well, the point I was trying to make, Wyatt, is that we can have righteousness that exceeds the, the 
righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees uh, by our faith in Christ, because he imputes us with his righteousness, and that is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. I was wondering if you were bringing that to the table with them. It's a good thing to bring I, to them. I, I agree, and I, and, I, and I asked them, and they said, well, grace, well, grace comes first, then the works. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute, you just contradicted your own uh, Book of Mormon. Yeah, they do that. Hey, my brother, thanks for the call. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, God bless. Right, God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, so we have a few emails, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, this is from Kathy M. She said, Jesus paid the debt for everyone all through his ministry, but he placed a major caveat on those who could claim the gift. Just as banks require permission from the debtor for, those other, for others to access their accounts, Jesus requires active permission from us in the form of belief in him, uh, repentance and confession that he is Lord. So no permission, no debt payoff. And this is that synergistic approach that she's talking about. Instead of just God saying that you have it, that's it. She's suggesting that just like in a banking transaction, in order for you to allow someone to have access to your accounts, you have to give that permission. And in order for Jesus to pay our debt and have access to our accounts, we have to say. Uh, that's why all through scripture we read, God and Jesus talking to the nation of Israel, uh, but you were not willing. I've called, but you were not willing. But you would not. I did this, but you would not. And you know, that someone said something to me profound the other day. They said, God, he, there's something he doesn't do and something that he can't do, it seems, and that is make us uh, believe something. He can't make us do something toward, that's good for us. He gives us options. He doesn't make us. And uh, I think there's something to that. Uh, Elton really straightened me out on something that I said about systematic theology. Uh, he says, hey, bud, I think you're a little hard on systematic uh, theology. I've read a lot about systematic theology, and I never read an actual opinion that a writer had. I don't mean, know what he means by that. Not to say that it's not out there, but true systematic theology is the summary of all Bible verses on one subject, such as sin, love, and resurrection. And I do know that, that it's almost like a, a concordance of passages on sin and on resurrection and on love. And, and they have some major categories in systematic theology that they typically cover. Uh, then he says, and then the next logic, uh, logical textbook conclusion is what they will bring. So my point was, systematic theology is often just another person's view of what scripture is saying. That's what I said. And it is in the end, after they give us a whole bunch of passages throughout the Bible, systematically on salvation, let's say, often they will add in their summary of what all those passages mean. And my point was, that's just another man telling us what it uh, should mean to us. He says, furthermore, systematic theology has been one of the main tools to refute cults and heretics throughout the ages. I don't, uh, I don't dispute that. Don't get me wrong. There are definitely a lot of corrupt liberal theologians that will, for instance, say that right here it says Jesus rose from the dead, but that's figurative language. And then he talks about another local, uh, another nationwide pastor uh, who takes systematic theology and he uses it to interpret it uh, himself. He says, but pure systematic theology is sound. And I would agree. And, and he says, I'm not trying to bust your ball. Oh, that's what he wrote. I'm not trying to bust your head. Uh, 
I love your show, keep at it. And, uh, but, uh, and so I take that correction because true systematic theology is great because it does provide us with a, 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 an abundance of biblical views on a subject. And so I don't dispute that. I was meaning, this is my problem with not communicating cor- uh, properly. I was talking about people who provide us their specific systematic theologies where they interpret what the passages mean. So I really appreciate that, uh, Elton, that insight, uh, uh, and uh, we'll go from there. So next week, we're going to continue on with what it means to be a Christian, and we will start to learn from Scripture in the most amazing way from Matthew chapter 5, what it looks like up there in that realm of the Spirit. So be with us next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start.